Today I'm speaking with Michael Golding. Michael is a board-certified psychiatrist with more than 20 years of experience treating ill patients in backwards psychiatric hospitals, in prisons, and in outpatient clinics. He has worked as chief psychiatrist of one of the largest prison systems in America and is an evolutionary epistemologist who loves the ideas of Charles Darwin, Karl Popper, and David Deutsch. Currently, he's working on applying them to model knowledge growth in economic systems, while also writing a book on psychiatric differential diagnoses to help the layperson understand the relationship between general medical and psychiatric practice. I've been wanting to get Michael on the podcast for almost a year to pick his brain on how we've used the mind and the interaction between creativity and physiology. And frankly, I could probably have spoken to him for 12 hours straight. But halfway through this conversation, we noticed that we wouldn't have time to go over even half of what we had planned. So we decided instead to save some big topics as well as your Twitter questions for next time so we could really focus on the topics at hand. And I think it made for a great conversation. It's worth noticing, too, that this is my first recording in a new apartment, so the quality is slightly different. And I also have some lovely neighbors drilling in the background occasionally. So apologies in advance for any disturbance to your delicate eardrums. But, um, yeah, enough of that. Now strap yourself in and get ready. Here's the fascinating Dr. Michael Golding. All right, so I'm here with Michael Golding. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, Christopher. Delighted to be here. Well, I'm actually, I was going to say I'm psyched to have you on to start off with a bad pun. But um, <laughs> I, I also have three jokes for you. Being a psychiatrist, I've balled up some jokes here. We have to have jokes, uh, Christopher, because I plan on psyching you out as much as I possibly can so that we can have a, a, <laughs> a more entertaining conversation. Well, I'm very glad we're on the same page there, Michael. So let's see. You've probably heard this before, but um, the first one goes like this. Why can't you hear a psychiatrist using the bathroom? I don't know, Christopher. Because the P is silent. Aha. Uh-huh. Yes, that indeed is true. <laughs> right. Okay. I'm uh, surprised you haven't heard that one. All right, no, man. I haven't. This I haven't one is it, more it must famous. be a, a Swedish special. Go ahead, Christopher. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> All right. So how many psychiatrists does it take to change a light bulb? We have to ask our Jewish mother to uh, to figure it out. We're too guilty to do it by ourselves. I don't know, Christopher. How many? <laughs> Only one, but the bulb really has to want to change. Oh, that one I've heard before. Yes, indeed. The bulb has to want to change. Indeed, it's a, it's an interesting joke because I think it reflects a bit of a popular misconception about psychiatry. I used to, indeed, when my patients would come into my office, I would tell them that I'm happy to help them. Uh, and what I needed from them was a commitment to come for at least six months regularly and to be open-minded. But I told them specifically they in no sense had to believe in any sense that anything that I was going to do would work or could work. I just mm, asked they just that have to they show just up. needed to show up and try. And I think it's a very much a misconception that someone needs to uh, believe in the power of something for it to actually be real and to have an effect. That's really interesting. I like it. And uh, so I have a third one for you there before we get into it. Sure. A Freudian slip is when you say one thing, but you mean your mother. 
another. Right. <laughs> right. I think it's uh, <laughs> it's similar to the idea of a what is a political mistake by a politician, a politician caught in the act of telling the truth. A similar yeah. sort of thing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. That's man. a pol- that's a political gaffe. No, it's yeah, that's tragic. That's horrible. But that's another conversation. Yes, so it is. um I thought we are uh, we're probably warmed up enough here to get into the good stuff. So Sure. I'd love if you could um tell me a little bit about yourself, who you are and and what it is you do and then we can take it from there. Yeah, my name is Michael Golding. I'm a board certified psychiatrist in the United States. I spent most of my life as a practicing psychiatrist. I've worked in uh, multiple different arenas. I've worked in the back wards of the toughest patients in, in the state hospital system. People hospitalize for years and years and years getting treatment. People who are considered some of the toughest to be able to treat. I've also trained at the University of North Carolina in psychiatry. I also have a National Institute of Mental Health completed fellowship in psychobiology and psychopharmacology. I was very privileged and pleased to have met and been introduced to David Deutsch, particularly through his uh, brilliant writings, and he helped very much change my thinking from a bit of a, quote, evidence-based sort of psychiatrist into someone who understood that really the mind is something that can create explanation, an ever-ending flow of information to be able to understand the world. And he helped, therefore, inform both my psychiatric practice and my philosophical ideas by his really brilliant and far-reaching ideas. I currently mm. am an administrator in one of the larger psychiatric medical systems in the country, In that task, I've visited people in the sickest of situations who are desperately ill, and we've we've worked very hard to be able to improve their their conditions. Now, that's a very very interesting background, and I would love to get more into the um, the details of of psychiatry in general and what it is you do on a daily basis. But I thought that you and you mentioned it there. You mentioned your view of the mind changed when you came across the the Deutschian ideas there. So I thought maybe you could just, um, since I had David on and I spoke to him about it, how, how, do, you, how do you view the mind uh, if we ask the very general question of what it is? And then maybe also you can uh, touch on the distinction between conscious and unconscious and what that distinction means to you. Yeah, those are, as you know, rather challenging questions. We don't really have an explanatory theory of the mind as of yet. Otherwise, we could create an artificial intelligence that is every bit as intelligent as we are. And so some of those questions are are a bit unknown at present. In terms of what the mind is, it's, it's many things. It clearly is a group of organized and evolving thoughts, a group of organized and evolving emotions. I take for granted that the universe is comprehensible, that there is an objective scientific truth and an objective moral truth, and all of these are understandable. Professor Deutsch added to my way of thinking a, almost a scientific proof. Not really. There are no scientific proofs. There are only conjectures. But he offered us a set of arguments that I find quite persuasive in uh, his books, The Beginning of Infinity and The Fabric of Reality. Uh, My sense is that if the current laws of physics 
as we understand them, are modelable by standard computers, even something simpler than that, really a, a Turing machine. And it seems that the, at least the current laws of physics seem to be. And if we can understand uh, standard computing logic, and uh, none of that seems particularly complicated, or uh, that does not seem to be a, 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 a challenge that uh, we cannot overcome, to just understand basic simple logic, then it is possible for us to model with these computers any aspect of the universe and therefore understand them, understand any aspect of the universe. Now, now that, of course, doesn't mean that we will. We, after all, could shoot nuclear weapons at each other and destroy the world and ourselves. It just means that there's nothing about the architecture, the physical architecture of our minds that prevents us from understanding and explaining any relevant aspect of the universe. That also doesn't mean that once we have an explanation, it is a final explanation. It just means that even though we may be infinitely many steps from the truth, we uh, we can get closer to it, uh, and we can have a greater explanatory understanding of the universe. And I think that is a remarkably freeing kind of conception of the mind. We don't have to be fixed. We don't have to be stuck we can grow indefinitely. And I'm you know, very excited to have inherited that optimism from Deutschian wisdom. Yeah. No, I mean, I, sh I share those intuitions. And I, um, I mean, this podcast itself was a, a creation that stemmed from those, uh, those very books that you mentioned there. And um, I'm curious then, I know that when I asked David, because the way I, I came from uh, cognitive science, a bachelor's in that, And that claims to be the scientific study of the mind. And the way they talk about and categorize the mind is more uh, in terms of all the programs running on the brain. So they would say that animals have minds as well and uh, use a more broad conception than what I understand David uh, to be using. Because when he says mind, he seems to be specifically uh, uh, referring to the creative part of the mind that can create these explanations ad infinitum as you mentioned there so is this something that you share with him as well in your way of talking about it or or do you use the more broad perception including you know memory and, and uh, sense perception and uh, attention and stuff like that I'm going to be careful not to characterize uh, Professor Deutsch's understanding of the mind he's quite capable of, of yeah. explicating it for himself so I, I will speak only uh, for myself and to the extent that there is agreement with him, that's fine. And to the extent that there's disagreement with him, he certainly is open to that as, am I? Uh, we are all fallible. Um, well, my view is that we are universal explanatory engines fully and completely, and that therefore our mind contains the possibility of creating explanations of anything. As I said before, that can physically be possibly explained. Having said that, I think that our mind shares bandwidth with various animal parts of the brain. And indeed, that must be the case if you think about it for a minute. I take it for granted that our genes embody uh, knowledge of the environment. 
Indeed, if one were to look at our evolutionary history and study the pattern and organization of our genes, we would be able to understand in more detail the selective pressure placed on those genes such that they use the body to be able to reproduce. So in that sense, genes embody a knowledge about the environment in such a way that enables themselves to be reproduced. Clearly, uh, that type of embodied knowledge is somehow transmitted to the minds of uh, babies. We know that because babies are not blank slates. For example, they have, at some point, thoughts and feelings. For example, when a baby opens his or her eyes, he or she looks at the world and sees solid walls. Now, in fact, we know from contemporary physics and chemistry that the walls are, in fact, not solid. They're mostly hollow, but presumably from an evolutionary perspective, it wasn't beneficial for us to see walls and solids, what we call solid structures as solid, because, for example, we couldn't put our arms or legs through them. It didn't help our genes survive to do that. Nonetheless, as an adult, these genetic propensities still influence me. I still look at the wall, and it still looks solid for me, but I adapt that knowledge. I've, I've learned chemistry, and I've learned a little bit of physics, and so that I know that even though it appears and still appears to me. I haven't changed that. Um, my genes are still influencing me. The, the wall still appears and intuitively seems solid to me. I just know that it isn't. And I've organized sort of this genetic knowledge that I have by virtue of the not easily changeable theories of the uh, my retinal receptors and receptors in my occipital lobes. Similarly, babies will experience a set of feelings initially. They can experience, for example, rage or anger surely by the time they are six months or nine months old. These are qualities of mind, like the color blue or the solidness of the wall, but they're feeling states that somehow are able to be transmuted from a genetic pattern into a neural pattern into the mind. We don't know how that occurs. We don't know how these, what are called quail or qualia, are created. Otherwise, we could create an artificial intelligence. But nonetheless, our genes have the capacity to do that and obviously do so with babies and even with adults. Now, it's not just with babies either. For example, if I stimulate an almond-shaped little bit of brain tissue in a particular way called the amygdala, I as an adult will feel a profound sense of rage or fear. Mm -hmm. Furthermore, we know that if I do surgery on that part of the brain. For example, if I remove the mesial temporal region, and that used to be done, by the way, for people with uh, rage attacks. Sadly, it used to be done. Uh, we create something called Clauer-Busey uh, syndrome, where the individual has virtually no anger, is hypersexual, hyperoral, but doesn't experience anger or rage. And indeed, we Many of us may even have experienced this, not in people who have had uh, their amygdala uh, removed, because thankfully we don't take out the mesial temporal region anymore, but people may have experienced with a particular type of dementia called frontotemporal dementia, in which these parts of the brain are damaged, and we have elderly people who are demented and are hypersexual and incredibly friendly, really wonderful people and fun to interact with, but clearly our mind, our creative, brilliant, wonderful, expansive mind shares space, shares the theater of the mind with animal parts of our brain, which are able to create experiences for us as well. And saying that one is true does not diminish the reality of the other. Yeah. So that, yeah, I like those examples. So, so you could say we are, we are universal programs running on mammalian hardware. 
I think that's uh, that's accurate, and it could also be the mammalian hardware can can be conceived of as fixed state machines, so they can themselves have a bit of software running. The issue is whether our software is able to immediately influence that software. And I would say to you, how might I influence your hardware in your brain? Well, one way I can do it is by speaking, and there's this complex thing that I don't quite understand, surely the physicists do, about how I'm speaking into this microphone. Somehow, magically, it's being transmitted across countries. There's vibrating air molecules. Somehow, they get into your ear, and somehow, you conjecture about those vibrating air molecules, which change the the, the ciliary cells in your inner ear, which then stimulate your auditory cortex, which then you conjecture about, and somehow, some way your mind might be shifted, particularly if I happen to be particularly sage or persuasive, which sometimes happens, but often doesn't. <laughs> so so the fact of the matter is we are operating on hardware and software that our own universal software doesn't immediately control. Having said that, that doesn't mean that we are permanently unable to control it. After all, I, for example, can put on a new pair of glasses or I can use a microscope. And the way in which my occipital lobe and retinal receptors are programmed to record and organize information for my mind is thus immediately changed. I can similarly take drugs which decrease the firing of my amygdala. I can take ketamine and have a lifetime of depression and anxiety and suicidality diminish before my eyes. I can have implanted in my brain in the subgenual cingulate gyrus. Helen Mayfield has done this. And indeed, although it requires brain surgery, sham pushes of the particular electrical stimulation do not make people feel happier. But immediately, a push of the button makes people feel uh, much better. That is indicative of the fact that our genes and the neural architecture that supports them can indeed create predictable mental experiences for us, but obviously our ideas are far more powerful, and we can both reinterpret those expressions and those ideas, those, if you will, emotional ideas that are coming from these animal parts of our brain. And indeed, if we're annoyed enough with them, we can even change the genes that create these problems to begin with if they are problems. So ultimately, we are in control, but that doesn't mean that our biology does not influence us. Indeed, it does. And anyone who denies that can can happily take a hit on the head and tell me that their thinking is every bit as efficient as it was before they got (laughs) hit on the head. Well, it's funny that you bring up that example because I've had seven concussions in my life and I can't think for shit anymore. So, uh, yeah, you're right. Your questioning surprises me very much. I Quite the opposite, uh, Christopher. (laughs) All of us who are listening to you, and, and I'm not just saying this as a compliment, have been thoroughly delighted by the intricacies of your mind and, frankly, your brilliance. And I'm very much uh, surprised and unhappy that your podcast has not spread far more widely, given the range and breadth of your imagination. Wow. Yeah, Michael, that's uh, very kind of you to say, and it means a lot coming from you. So um, I appreciate that. And I mean, I I, I guess more and more, uh, this is slightly off topic, but... um, when it comes to the the uh, the insights of how you we are all universal explainers, we have the potential, at least in principle, to uh, surpass any uh, boundary, psychological or or otherwise. It's um, yeah, it's something that that's opened me up more and more to the 
I think we have a lot of unnecessary psychological blocks that we've imposed, uh, not voluntarily, but by the way we're raised, the way our culture treats children. And uh, like I spoke to my um, previous guest about, uh, it's, uh, yeah, well, I've started to loosen some of those old uh, hangups for myself. And I actually don't. I do think that I, uh, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm a better thinker as a result of that. So I think you can hear the progression if you listen from the beginning, where I was more, uh, not as confident, maybe more self, uh, self conscious and uh, a little more hesitant. Now I think it's more, uh, my, my judgment of whether an episode is good or not is how fun and inquisitive it is and how curious I am rather than how smart I sound. So there you go. Yeah. Uh, that is quite true. And, and indeed the, creative part of ourselves is really best activated when the internal critic can just be silent for a moment. Better to be have fun, open oneself to criticism, and be corrected, but be fully expressed than to hide behind internal self-criticism and attempt to be silent and appear smart. It really isn't smart. It doesn't no. <laughs> uh, allow the individual or his or her community to uh, to prosper and grow. And it's uh, silencing children and their creativity is just an absolute disaster. And yeah. it's something that we need to we need to prevent. No, we do. And I think the first step in doing that is to uh, stop doing it to ourselves. Because I mean, it's hard to be a good role model as a parent if you yourself believe you're a piece of shit that can't do anything and. Yeah, I think it's it's good to lead with a good example there. Oh yeah, no, no, you're you're quite correct. It's, I, it's almost impossible to lead that way because words are just words. Children hear one's intentions and one's feelings and how one communicates with them, and children experience the open-ended uh, love. I've I've met many a parent who will say all kinds of odd things about the way in which they think children should be raised, and yet you see how they interact with their child that is so loving that you yeah. almost ignore their words. And in psychiatry, we often say that we do listen carefully to people's words, but more to understand the logic of how they're putting their ideas together. And in terms of figuring out what's going on with somebody, we often watch their actions more. The reason is that people often do an awful lot of confabulation and storytelling about themselves, which is a uniquely and wonderful human trait, but it also can be a good bit self-deceiving. Oh, it can. And I mean, yeah, I feel like this conversation will, will have a lot of these, uh, um, uh, what's it called? What's it called when you're at a road and there are two ways you can take? And you don't know which, which one to take. It's a word for that, right? I don't know. The road less traveled. To quote yeah, yeah, something like that. But uh, yeah, so so I'm going to have to prioritize a little bit here. So I want to get back to um, one of the primary things I wanted to bring up with you is the whole idea of, yeah, wh what role does physiology play in our ability to uh, be creative and in our human behavior? And I, I feel like there is a proclivity uh, within the, uh, critical rationalist, especially the, the Deutschian community to perhaps since David so brilliantly showed us that, yeah, ideas are very, very important and they are the, the, uh, the primary driver when trying to explain our behaviors. It's, um, I, I feel like it's easy to downplay or neglect entirely 
the role of physiology there. Since physiology, although not fundamental in the sense that we could transcend our psychological mediums of computation in the future, uh, presumably, but it's still uh, a fact of the matter that we are living in these bodies. And like you said, they are sharing space with the universal program there. But I, so I'm curious then, before we get deeper into that, what uh, you're, you're clearly using the hardware and software distinction as well. And I'm curious, what is the, what, what, what do we mean when we use that analogy? Because I, I know that the, uh, let's see how to phrase this. What is hardware effectively in relation to ideas? I mean, it's genes contain knowledge as well. It's just a different type of knowledge. So is hardware just a way of talking about that, that type of knowledge, the non-explanatory knowledge or, uh, yeah, how do you how do you think about that distinction between hardware and software? Well, it's not precisely my area of expertise, but I would uh, say this. I think that any aspect of hardware can be effectively modeled using software. So over the long term, software is king. That doesn't mean, however, that, for example, in communicating with you, that hardware is not the medium that controls and helps to organize information flow between various aspects of the mind. Indeed, that must be so. Let me give you three examples of that. Hmm. There are three genetic conditions that I'm going to speak about. One is Prader-Willi syndrome, the other is Angelman syndrome, and the other is phenylketonuria. Interestingly, Angelman syndrome and Prader-Willi similarly involve a particular place on the 15th chromosome, though Prader-Willi comes from an abnormality with the father's genes transmitted to the baby, and, the, and Angelman syndrome comes from an ab, a similar abnormality from the mother's genes. And interestingly, uh, if we measure the IQ of these children, those with Angelman syndrome don't really develop much beyond a three-year-old in terms of average knowledge and intelligence. Those with Prader-Willi may develop an IQ somewhere between average of about 100 and, and maybe 70. And phenylketonuria is still a third disorder, which is allows us to expand the entire range of the IQ spectrum. It seems that it is a, an error in metabolism of phenylalanine, quite a genetic disorder. It's uh, transmitted absolutely in family. And yet, if one controls the diet, if you will, the physiology of a child and takes away the phenylalanine consumption from food, the child's IQ will be entirely normal. And interestingly, the higher the concentration of phenylalanine in the diet, the lower the IQ. What's going on there? That's a great question. But I'm curious then, what, how, how, do you view, how do you view IQ? Because I, I found some quotes from uh, when David Deutsch spoke to Sam Harris the first time, I think, uh, on Sam Harris's podcast. And David said something along the lines of, uh, yeah, the idea of super intelligent machines is the same mistake as thinking that IQ is a matter of hardware. IQ is just knowledge of a certain type. And then he said that IQ, we shouldn't talk about it. It's not very effective. Creativity is the effective factor. So do you differ there? It sounds here like uh, hard, hardware, IQ is a matter of hardware. Not exactly. I, 
it okay. certainly is a matter of knowledge, our ability to generate knowledge. But my only point that I would add, and Professor Deutsch didn't say that, at least in the context of that quote that you mentioned, is that our ability to guess answers, to conjecture, our ability to criticize, that is, our ability to evolve knowledge, can be more or less efficient based upon several things. One is the previous knowledge that we have, surely, but also just based on the efficiency of our conjecturing, our guessing, and our criticizing. And surely, physiological variables can make it more or less difficult to do that. For example, if one is tired... Let, let me just ask real quick. So do you mean in terms of uh, memory and speed then? I do actually mean in, in terms of memory and speed, yeah. but memory and speed have implications. For example, if one is slower because of memory and speed issues in creating knowledge or error-correcting knowledge, then, for example, the rates of errors can accumulate as rapidly as the rate of new knowledge. And so we're not a static system. We're constantly forgetting, and thus we need to recreate knowledge. Let me use another example. It's not quite a correct example, but I'll correct it in a minute. In a minute. Think about cancer for a second. Cancer is caused by mutation of our genes. And certainly all new evolutionary structures before ideas were created came from mutations. Most mutations are deleterious and actually kill the, the organism when they happen. Now, it so happens that the body has detectors for mutations and actually destroys the cells themselves that are creating these mutations. But if the rate of mutation is faster than the rate that our cells can destroy these mutations in other cells, then we will develop cancer. And it essentially the rate of error is greater than the rate of error correction. Physiology is very much like that. The rate of error can exceed the rate of error correction, and thus our mind can deteriorate, or it can be about the same and thus we can fail to grow knowledge because of interference with our ability to think. And I think IQ has a bit of those properties. It is very much dependent upon knowledge. The more overall knowledge we have, the better and faster we will be able to correct errors. But that doesn't mean that in developing knowledge, the initial speed and memory uh, doesn't matter. It absolutely does. Right. But are you saying then that there is a big discrepancy between people, let's say for a person who has uh, knowledge, um, sorry, has IQ of 100 versus a person who has an IQ of 140. Uh, so I guess 100 is a, a, the average person and 140 would be considered uh, quite the genius. Is there such a big difference there in between them? Or, and, and what I still don't understand what that would entail. Are you saying that it is hardware dependent to some extent then? They just have a faster processing speed and, and uh, more memory capacity to conjecture and error correct faster. Both are helpful, both speed and memory, uh, but sufficient knowledge easily overcomes and sufficient depth of knowledge easily overcomes a slower processor. So Let's put it another way. Let's say someone with an IQ of 100 versus someone with an IQ of 140, and they both lived a million years. I suspect after a million years, the difference between the person with an IQ of 100 and the person with an IQ of 140 would be 
very slim indeed. Both people's IQ would dramatically over time increase. And the reason it would increase, even for a given speed, is because knowledge would increase. And the greater the knowledge, the greater one's ability to guess, to notice patterns, to notice things which are the most interesting. So depth of knowledge begets depth of knowledge, regardless of uh, speed or memory. It also parenthetically happens that the more depth of knowledge, the more one can add to one's speed and memory as well, eventually with brain surgery and other sorts of things. And, and hence, we probably as humans will eventually migrate into machines. But memory, speed, which in some ways amount to the, uh, something similar, as well as knowledge, are all factors in our ability to increase our IQ. Eventually, the more important factor is knowledge and not speed. So in that sense, if Professor Deutsch is making that point, I absolutely agree with him. We should be focusing on knowledge creation and not speed and memory. However, in cases like someone with Prader-Willi or Angelman syndrome or phenylketonuria, to ignore things like speed and memory and interference with thinking uh, that would be a mistake. I'm not sure that Professor Deutsch makes that mistake. Surely when we get hit on the head, we're not thinking as well. There's no reason why an internal physiological state due to differences in genes cannot simulate the physiological equivalent of being hit on the head. Ultimately, it is software that matters. Ultimately, it is our knowledge that matters. Ultimately, IQ cannot be fixed. However, in particular cases, certainly, there can be interference with conjecturing, criticizing, and growing knowledge. And anyone who's ever been tired, anyone who's ever drunk a cup of coffee and then felt more efficient in thinking again is surely aware that speed and memory are relevant as well. Yes, but when you're talking about IQ as a measure, what are you saying it's a synthesis? I don't know if this is a... a um, limitation in my IQ here that I don't get it yet, but is it, uh, is it a synthesis of the knowledge? Is it certain type of knowledge and it has to do with your brain's efficiency and memory and speed? Yes, all, all three of those. All three of those very much influence one's ability to uh, grow knowledge. And I suppose it's, it's more important to think in terms of IQ when we talk about people who are uh, on the very lower end of it, where I, I'm, I'm just guessing here, but when you reach a certain um, escape velocity in terms of, yeah, I, I have enough speed and memory capacity to conjecture efficiently, uh, the, the difference between, like you said, 100 and 140 might not be nearly as uh, significant as the same 40 points from 100 down where you might not have enough memory and uh, speed to error correct uh, fast enough to not let the errors and the problems be created faster than you can deal with. Um, does that make sense? I think that's true. Once the rate of error correction is faster than the rate of error creation, one reaches a type of, to use your words, escape velocity. The key thing is, is what happens is that any given bit of knowledge has reach into other bits of knowledge. And thus, the more one has, ultimately, the greater depth of one's knowledge as well, because 
of that reach of the knowledge, its ability to organize other sets of ideas as well, given one's understanding of one aspect of the knowledge. And so ultimately, given enough years, I don't really think that uh, speed and memory is the issue. And even if it were, additional knowledge would also allow one to increase one's speed and memory. I'm I'm going to take it back to psychiatry then and to tie it in with that because you have a uh, in my mind a beautiful definition of what psychiatry is that I've seen on Twitter and retweeted previously. So uh, yeah, w- what is psychiatry in your words, and uh, what is it that a psychiatrist does? First, psychiatry is a medical profession. I think people need to understand that when psychiatrists evaluate people. We're literally ruling out thousands and thousands of uh, medical diagnoses in order to come up with the a differential diagnosis or the, the remaining range of diagnoses that we think might apply in a given situation. So psychiatry is not about checking a group of symptoms and seeing if they correlate and then saying a person has a disorder. Let me give an example of that. Let's say someone says that they're having uh, difficulty eating. That certainly may be a symptom of uh, depression, but if in exploring that further, one finds out that the person is initially hungry, but then the person fills up quickly, that's called early satiety. That immediately would move the psychiatrist away from a diagnosis of depression to thinking about physiological causes, for example, a space-occupying lesion or a cancer. Mm-hmm. in the, the stomach. Now, the psychiatrist isn't going to work up that cancer, but would refer to a general medical colleague to do so. The same is true of sleep changes, concentration changes, or sadness. All of those symptoms can be due to a set of medical conditions that mimic what we otherwise would call depression. So, so psychiatry is firmly a branch of medicine. Our mm-hmm. diagnoses can't be made unless individual has a very broad knowledge of medicine to begin with, which is why we need to go to medical school for four years, uh, psychiatric residency for four more, and often fellowships uh, more than that. It's, it's just that complicated. My sense of psychiatry is that what we do from a Popperian perspective is help people to conjecture and criticize. So we help people to think more easily about cognitively and emotionally and more happily. So the overall conception is psychiatry is the study of how to eliminate biological and psychological factors that diminish a person's efficiency in happily conjecturing and criticizing. Right. Yeah. No, I like that conception. It might not be that uh, strange to some uh, Papirian, but if, if, yeah, what, what is mental illness then or insanity? Is that as easy as saying as it's a diminished uh, capacity to happily uh, conjecture and criticize? Or is that too simplistic of a categorization? I would distinguish between most mental illness because most mental illness isn't uh, insanity. Uh, most mentally ill individuals are perfectly capable of reasoning. They just may be slower or have more difficulty than than their baseline. And, and by reasoning, I mean it in a very broad sense. I just don't mean cognitively. There's a certain kind of emotional reasoning, too. 
in which one uh, is not at war with oneself, and in which one is able to make peace with oneself, in which one is able to experience a joy. And that requires, again, the ability to, to effectively transmit uh, information to various animal parts of the brain and uh, uh, to effectively soothe those parts of the brain, uh, uh, effectively to, to, to integrate the various aspects of, of one's mind. And insanity would be just a complete loss of that ability, uh, any of those abilities. Uh. Well, I, I wouldn't quite say it that way. I would say insanity is that uh, ultimately is that the, the rate in, in a relevant domain, the rate of error creation is faster than the rate of error correction. Think of it mm. this way. Whatever we conjecture, we are adding a randomness to a given uh, set of ideas. So that is sort of equivalent to a, a mutation. It really isn't, because when we're conjecturing unconsciously, it, it must be the case that there's randomness added to a set of ideas and then it's unconsciously criticized, and then it happens again and again and again before we get a, a conjecture that actually pops into our head as a guess about what must be happening. But if too much randomness is added and not enough criticism happens, then the idea will become more and more random and more and more chaotic. And indeed, you see that in the minds of those with schizophrenia. We call that, in their speech, a loosening of associations. And I think all of our audience could relate to that a little bit by imagining this. Now, I in no way think that schizophrenia or psychosis, classic, quote, insanity in psychiatry, is the equivalent of dreaming. But there are absolute analogies between them. And so I use the dreaming analogy to help people to understand psychosis. Okay. Um, every night when we go to sleep and dream, we have a whole series of uh, images, voices, sounds, and colors that impinge upon uh, our mind. Many of the connections between those various ideas seem to make perfect sense to us while we're asleep. How do we know that? Well, we know that because, for example, if we're having a nightmare, we're becoming frightened. All of a sudden, when a person turned into a lion, we may know when we're conscious and thinking about our dream and awakened that a person's head can't turn into a lion. And so we'll just say to ourselves, oh, that was just a bad dream. But during the dream, we saw that head as a lion, and we became frightened. So I think this gets back to a previous question of yours as well. What is the difference between the conscious and the unconscious mind? Surely there are many differences. But one difference is that the unconscious mind does not usually appear to be aware of the conscious mind. So it, it doesn't compare and say, okay, when I'm awake that lion on that guy's head couldn't be. 
so I don't need to be afraid. However, when we awake, we can compare the unconscious mind with our conscious understanding. So, in a sense, the the conscious mind has a certain type of awareness of altered states of reality, whereas the unconscious mind uh, does not. And notice something else about this. This state of being frightened and not conjecturing and criticizing as well, namely when we're dreaming, can be perfectly well created, and indeed is created every night by a physiological state. I could just as easily give someone a shot of something that made them sleep and therefore put them in a dream, no matter how much creativity yeah. the person might imagine, I can put them to a sleep and I can make, basically, a doctor can make anyone crazy. And indeed, everyone makes themselves crazy every single night when they go to sleep. So people who say that schizophrenia can't be real are really making a, a terrible mistake because every night they fool themselves about their relative ability to think. So it has to do in a large extent with the, um, the uh, reality testing or whatever you want to call it. It's, it's, uh, yeah, I think in, in Popperian terms, it's really the, the, the criticism, the, the, the rate of mutation and conjecture versus the rate of criticism. It must be that unconsciously, in an aspect of our mind that we don't control, we're making too many, if you will, we're adding too much randomness. It's almost like a mutation in a cell. So schizophrenia is kind of like cancer of the mind. Mm. It's creating too many mutations for inadequate evolutionary process. And indeed, most evolutionary paths lead to death and destruction. And so schizophrenia is kind of an evolutionary path of mutation, of ideas that has gotten out of control and thus leads to the death of the patient's ability uh, to think. And that it differs. So people will say, what's, I'm sorry, go ahead, sir. No, no, please continue. I was going to say, in that sense, it differs. People will sometimes say, well, someone with schizophrenia is, is, is sort of like a terrorist. And the answer is, they have nothing to do with each other in the slightest. A terrorist might very well be able to lead a group of, frankly, mean people, because a terrorist's mind is quite organized. Admittedly, it's filled with, in my view, evil ideas yeah, it's that we just should be killing innocent people. Case. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it, it's a uh, it, it, it's the view that we should be killing people, and they are able to lead people in a way to do that. No patient with schizophrenia ever in history is leading anyone. Everyone recognizes immediately that such people are out of control and not making any sense. Unless you postulate that someone like Jesus was, was in fact, uh, paranoid schizophrenic or something. Uh, yeah, but Jesus would not have been able to lead people or organize people. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, and, and being able to do it. This is the, These states in psychosis are disorganized states. I can well believe that there is a magical fairy princess on Mars, and I could even say that I'm speaking to that person. But a psychiatrist would not really be listening to the content 
of what was said, but rather the process of the way it's being said. If there's a certain logic and coherence to the fairy princess on Mars uh, running the universe, that person is mistaken, but they don't have a fundamental biological problem in the way in which they're guessing ideas and criticizing them. There's just a big difference. Yeah. No, that's an important distinction. So I just want to clarify when you're talking about uh, dreams uh, being a, a problem with unconscious uh, error correcting there, because I mean, dreams are conscious, but you're, you're saying that in dreams, something unconscious, some, some sort of filtering or criticizing component of our uh, waking perception is not, is not turned on. And hence, that's why the conscious experience is so. It, it's interesting. I guess it's, it's, I think what you're saying is this is more of a, of a definitional sort of thing. Freud would say that dreams are the royal road to the unconscious. And so the content of dreams appears to be initiated from the unconscious mind. And there seems to be a lack of a filter, in a sense, between the unconscious mind and the conscious mind. And so the process that normally occurs unconsciously, namely this guessing and this association of ideas, then in some ways makes it to the conscious mind. And in that sense, we get a window into the unconscious processes hmm. when we wake up and think, oh my goodness, in this dream, X or Y occurred. And interestingly, very likely dreams have a good function to help us. We don't exactly know what it is, but teleologically, nature certainly is aware that acting on one's dream would be quite dangerous. So what nature does is it paralyzes our muscles during dreaming to prevent us from getting up and acting on the craziness of our dreams. Interestingly, there are uh, neurological states that are relatively rare, although perhaps not that rare, associated with Parkinson's disease and other sorts of things called uh, REM behavioral disorder, where in fact one does enact one's dreams. Usually it's not much. For example, a person might be imagining a burglar coming into their home and then kicking the person in the dream, but actually kicking the bed partner, which can be very yeah. frustrating. And actually, it, yeah. well, it happens. And it actually is, is, is a bit of a serious sort of a thing. We've sometimes had to separate couples because of this REM uh, behavioral disorder. And the interesting thing is, do you then hold the person responsible for his kicking? And I think it's an interesting question. Mostly not, because most bed partners want to continue to, to sleep together. But if it gets uh, bad enough, then really people do have an interest in, in at least separating the beds or maybe getting two different beds and separating them or something like that so that one person doesn't injure the other person during sleep. Hmm. I just want to reiterate in my own words what you've said so far here because I find this exceptionally interesting. So the whole schizophrenia idea there, you're, you're saying that in our conjecturing uh, process, which mostly is unconscious, I'm supposing that that there are a lot of conjecturing there before we ever get something popping up in consciousness. Um, that process involves just like uh, mutation in evolutionary terms, in genetic terms, uh, randomness. And so a little bit of randomness is uh, what helps us to mutate our ideas and improve our ideas combined with the criticism that we can uh, apply. 
And in schizophrenia, you're saying that the mutation and the randomness is a, a much larger part of this process, uh, which makes, for, for example, when you were talking about associating things, if you say horse to me, I might think um, riding, uh, helmet, whereas a schizophrenic might hear horse and their association is much looser, like horse, okay, uh, the moon, but to them it feels just as sensical as my association is. Am I right so far? Exactly. And, and indeed, their speech, there's such a thing called word salad. Oh, yeah, I've heard about this, yeah. Very, very, very sick patients will do exactly that. They'll say horse, moon, and then they'll smile and say, you got it, or something <laughs> like that. Okay. Things that are completely unconnected. And so that demonstrates quite clearly the process of the mind, which is why it's it's so desperately sad to me that certain paparians don't understand that psychiatry is the window to understanding precisely what they're saying and what I'm saying is important. Mm. This idea that mind is an evolutionary process, and yet the various aspects of that process are laid bare in the understanding of psychiatry. Thus, Failing to take psychiatry seriously, as some, not most, do, yeah. is a desperate and poor philosophical decision. But are you saying then that the in, in the schizophrenic case, it's a matter of hardware, primarily, or maybe entirely? My sense is that it could be simulated with software, but yes, I, I do think that uh, physiological derangements uh, precipitate that. Uh, many things precipitate states like that. For example, let's say someone has a lung transplant. Uh, they have cystic fibrosis, for example. 50% of individuals who are in the ICU will be grossly psychotic uh, and really what's called delirious, a slightly different thing after that. They're literally making associations while they're awake. They'll be seeing hallucinations of people. They'll be grabbing at their tube that is breathing from them and pulling it out. This is 50% of people. They'll be pulling their IVs out. And every one of these patients virtually who has this problem will need to be restrained. And they'll be mad about it. Now, failing to restrain such a person will get you a good solid lawsuit by that very person. And it should. Because you're not dealing with their error-correcting mind. Their mind is loosely associating all kinds of ideas in a way that is incoherent. You're dealing with a mammal, not the person, perhaps. Well, I think it's even a little bit different than a mammal because, because this person is creating sort of conjectures that I'm not sure that a mammal could do. It's yeah, just course, that the associations go between moon and horse, as you said. And interestingly, the very drugs that we use to treat schizophrenia, we use in far higher doses. IV to get these people to stop and it works. They come back down to earth, start making sense, and they stop pulling out their tubes. So what must these drugs be doing? They must be doing something like slowing down the rate at which associations and randomness are being generated in the brain in a very hardware sort of way and giving the mind time to error correct reality test, if you will, and thus become coherent. So the idea that 
physiology can create insanity and can reverse insanity should be no more surprising to someone than that they can go to sleep and think bizarrely and awaken and understand that they were thinking bizarrely as well. Why a paparian would have difficulty with that, and I don't think most do, but some do, is beyond me, since a paparian should be most capable of understanding precisely what is happening in that situation. All right, folks, time for the fun stuff. If you enjoy my podcast and you want to support it, you can now become a monthly Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash doexplain. Or if you'd rather make a one-time donation, you can visit ko-fi.com slash doexplain instead. That is ko-fi.com slash doexplain. Perhaps ask yourself, what would Jesus do? And surely Jesus would donate to uh, doexplain. Another way to make the podcast grow and improve is to tell people you know who you think would enjoy it to check it out. Because with more support and exposure, I'll be able to improve the podcast continually and produce more content, which is something that I would love to do. Lastly, thank you so much to all of you who've donated so far. It truly means the world to me, and I want to extend my gratitude. Back to enjoying the show. But there was a Twitter discussion uh, fairly recently where you chimed in there, and uh, I chime in a lot of places, so I have I have no idea. And and furthermore, <laughs> I don't take credit for all of my my Twitter chimes, to use your word. I'm right. I'm sure that I like all of us. I react relatively quickly, and I use Twitter as a forum to make many mistakes. So please don't take yeah, it too yeah, literally, yeah. and I'm very pleased to have my ideas corrected by those who are thinking more carefully about given situations. You made perfect sense, Michael. You said you were dancing around in a princess dress, and that was a perfect answer, you know? Oh, yeah, no, a princess dresses I enjoy. I mean, you know, don't you? <laughs> but um, no, the, the discussion was about... Uh, this very thing, how how the mind works and, and, and mind disorders to some extent. And I think that my intuition is if, if you cut off my arm, then the, the fact that I can't use that hand anymore is 100% due to hardware. And nobody would dispute that. But I'm wondering if there are cases of mental illness uh, as uh, like those we're talking about right now, like uh, severe schizophrenia, where it's basically like that. It's merely a matter of the hormonal states in the brain, the neurotransmitters uh, and their ratios. And it, it, it might be talked about but because in, in this Twitter thread, there was a lot of it's all ideas. It's all. Yeah. I mean, you can think your way out of it or uh, which I guess in principle, if you're universal, there, there's always a way to solve something. But some things are just prohibited by the laws of nature, right? If you have, if you inhabit the physiology that we have now, right now, we can, yes, we can create theories to uh, transcend the physiology and go into different mediums or get bionic arms instead and stuff like that. But that's indirectly solving the problem. I'm speaking about might there be, there has to be fundamental limitations to our hardware that we currently have. And I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if there are certain things that we classify as mental illness, such as schizophrenia, that might be just as much a hardware fault and has very little to do with ideas uh, in the same way where, where an arm, cutting off an arm is, is purely hardware. I don't know if that makes sense, but, but yeah. It does, but I think that the distinctions you're making are maybe a little softer than 
what you're saying, both with physical illness and so-called mental illness. Yeah. Let me give you an example of that. And I, and I don't, you ask me the questions, but let me ask you one just for, yeah. <laughs> uh, just for fun. Please. Let's say a person has a major depressive illness. So we've ruled out literally thousands of other conditions which could present with that set of symptoms. And we're left with this condition uh, that we call depression. The person's having trouble sleeping, eating, appetite. They're having trouble enjoying themselves. Associated with this, or really in some ways, it, ultimately, I think when we understand the physiology, I think we could say, explained by this state of ideas, one has interesting inflammatory mediators that are increased in the body. Our platelets are hyperactive and aggregate more. The blood vessels in our heart constrict and dilate more, damaging the internal lining more and thus allowing platelets to accumulate under the wall. So we have an inflammatory state in the body because of the depression. We have a vascular hyperreactivity associated with the depression. We have platelets that are aggregating and the person is clotting more because of the depression. And indeed, the person is far more likely to have a heart attack because of the depression. Now, surely, if one were to change the individual's ideas, not just their conscious ideas, that's been tried. It doesn't work. Yeah. People have done cognitive behavioral therapy and it, uh, with these individuals, and they still have rates of heart attacks that are about the same. But after a heart attack, if an individual is depressed, depending upon how you calculate it, a person is about three to five times more likely to die from that heart attack if they happen also to be depressed. So would one say that heart attack or that subsequent death is best explained by one's ideas, admittedly mostly unconscious ideas, or is it best explained by one's physiology? Let me give you another example. Can, can I just comment there, on there, that there, first? Sure. So, but, but it depends on where how you explain the causality there because you're you're assuming now that the the depression to begin with is a matter of ideas which um which sounds reasonable to me and that in turn so the the software is creating a downstream physiological effect that is uh, uh unhealthy but i mean that's what i'm wondering are couldn't there be cases where because you said we can induce certain, uh, yeah, psychotic states or, or whatever with chemical cocktails. So I'm thinking, couldn't it be that you can have a depression that is entirely chemically induced and hence the causality is the other way around? That The, the ideas don't really play any part there. I would say it's very, for all practical purposes, I 100% agree with you. I'm just disagreeing a little bit about the, the details. I, I I would say that for all practical purposes, there are many states that are absolutely physically uh, induced and best explained that way and best understood that way. I'm very hesitant to say that ideas could never possibly change something because I think my view from Deutsch and others is that it is always possible for an idea to solve a problem. Problems are soluble. But what does that mean in the case of severe schizophrenia, for instance? Yeah, 
practically for right now, it means that the person needs to be on drugs and that one shouldn't consider it a problem with their ideas. Practically, in the case of someone who's catatonic, who is very likely going to die if they don't get electroconvulsive therapy, they're literally so, they're, they're rigid, they barely move. In some of them, if you move their arm, their arm might stay in that same place for uh, weeks on end and they'll, you know, won't sleep. People in these states are, are disastrously ill. I think people who are imagining mental illness from a biological cause are not imagining any of these states. They're imagining their neighbor who's annoying them. I think very few people, no, I, I think very few people have seen genuine mental illness. And there's a certain implicit knowledge that you get by interacting with these people and understanding it. And indeed, the treatment of choice here is, I mean, you try one or two things and then you use ECT. Understanding that in other than a physical way is really a mistake. No one has the knowledge to be able to get themselves out of a catatonic state. No one has the knowledge to get themselves out of these severe psychotic states. No one whose lungs were just removed has the knowledge to get themselves out of a state of delirium in which they're pulling their tubes out. Currently, just because it's possible. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So okay. currently, because that's a much weaker claim. I I I thought there might be a claim that it, certain hardware faults are just loss of nature in the sense that there's no knowledge that can be created internally in a mind that would solve it. But you're saying no, no, no. Currently, uh, we don't have that knowledge, but it could be created in principle. Let me give you an example of that. Let's say I stimulate the amygdala. Yes. And thus create a rage reaction. There's no reason from my perspective to think that my universal software can magically go to the amygdala and make it stop creating a rage reaction in response to my stimulating the amygdala. So in that sense, it's purely a hardware thing. But what could I, but what could my universal mind do? My universal mind could simulate also something that shares bandwidth with that rage. For example, I could create a state of, of love in my mind, so I might feel both love and anger both at once. So I hesitate to say that ideas could not possibly do anything. No, yeah, no. It would be sort of like saying that my speaking to you could not possibly influence your mind such that some bit of hardware in you would not work better. My software has no direct control over your brain any more than my software has direct control over aspects of my amygdala. Indeed, I think I might have more luck speaking with you than speaking with my amygdala. <laughs> Regardless, I hesitate to say that such things are impossible, but for all practical purposes, my software, universal or not, does not control physical aspects of the universe, even within my own brain, let alone within yours, or let alone on the moon. I don't know if I'm I'm just twisting myself up here in my own in my own head, but the way I look at it is if you use David Deutsch's momentous dichotomy there, either it's prohibited by the laws of nature or it is possible with the right knowledge. There has to be physiological states that can only be mediated by changing hardware and not mediated by uh, purely software. I, I feel like that's what you're saying now, but that there's always ways to get around certain things. Even if you can't effectively stop a certain sensation, 
you can uh, create other other things around it, like you said, love and fear at the same time, or rage. And uh, yeah, am I am I hitting it on the the head there, the nail? You are. And also, I would ask uh, this question too. Uh, let's say I'm speaking in public and I'm feeling nervous. Yeah. Okay. So what's going on there? Surely my genes aren't aware of what microphones are. They don't know what conference rooms are. No. So in order to be able to stimulate aspects of my brain and mind that induce fear, I have to be able to simplify that. I have to be able to say to those animal parts of my brain, you are being scrutinized right now, Michael Golding, and send that information to the animal parts of the brain. Now, the animal part of the brain might very well be wired differently in different people. So that animal part of the brain might well create extreme states of anxiety in one person and almost nothing in someone else due to biological differences. Yeah. Now, do we want to say that that's entirely a physical thing or do we want to say that it's slightly software related? In a way, that part of my brain that's making me nervous is acting a bit like a terrorist. What might I do with a terrorist? Uh, with a terrorist, for example, I might be willing to deceive the terrorist so the terrorist doesn't hurt me. Why is it a terrorist, you mean, the anxiety? If it's creating so much anxiety that it's stopping me from speaking in public when I'm in fact not in danger. Yeah, but then the idea is the terrorist, isn't it? Not the... I mean, the... the, the... Uh, well, in creating fear, it's creating conflict in my mind. Okay. That need not be there, like a terrorist creates conflict with people that need not be there. Now, what might we do to get a terrorist to stop? I might do a physical intervention. I might bomb the terrorist. But the other thing that I could do, and this is a, a software-related sort of a thing, is I could imagine that everyone in the audience is naked. <laughs> and, of course, that's a bit of advice that people do give when you're feeling nervous. And so what really am I doing? You're being a pervert, Michael. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, that that in addition to, <laughs> I'm enjoying myself, that's right. But in one sense, what I'm doing is I'm sending a message, instead of, Michael, you're being scrutinized to my, uh, those aspects of the brain that might induce fear, I'm sending a message that says, Michael, you're not being scrutinized. Now, in fact, that's not true. I am being scrutinized. So one of the ways of dealing with sort of biological aspects of one's mind is to soothe them in certain ways. By, for example, imagining that one's at a beach, or for that matter, imagining that they're naked. So there is a subtle relationship between even hardware and software, such that software can send messages and information. That doesn't mean that that information will be perfectly received or understood. No, we have to expect the, the, that that can't be the case. I mean, it's always imperfect, if puparianism is true. Yeah, absolutely. And so... My software is always capable of sending information signals to hardware. Yes. In some capacity because of its universality. My knowledge of how to make an information signal perfectly do what I want is going to be quite imperfect. And in that sense, it's very practical to think that the best explanation is that the hardware is screwing up. Okay. So you're saying, okay, even in the case. I'm sounding now like the, that. Uh, I don't know if you saw the woman who interviewed um, Jordan Peterson and Kathy something, I think, Kathy Newman, who was uh, saying, so you're saying, and then she just said something completely different from what he was trying to say over and over. So I, I, I'm starting to sound like her. But 
so you're saying in the case where, even in the case where the idea is driving the biological expression, it could make sense to talk about it as a biological problem as well. Well, let me use your example of uh, an arm being chopped off. My arm doesn't need to be chopped off in that situation. It's, it's entirely possible that had I sent the right information to my arm, I could have moved it out of the way before it got chopped off. I think yeah, that's dodging the my question. My software is sending... Sorry. Okay. I'm getting eager. I very well might be. No, I wanted to say that um, I think that you... Y y yes, if in all of these cases, even for a, s a seriously schizophrenic patient with no no conception of reality... You still have the reason they're saying, oh, I'm being uh, persecuted by the FBI or the CIA, I guess is the most common. Maybe that is they, they weren't born with those ideas. That is a matter of interpretation. That is the interpretation is idea driven. But I'm saying that in the case uh, that you're putting forth here with talking in front of an audience, you have the 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 causality from the idea. Hmm, I'm being scrutinized to the biological expression, whereas I'm trying to talk about conditions where, yeah, like when you're stimulating the amygdala uh, mechanically, then the causality is you, you make an interpretation after that, what that means, but it's still the, the sensation is chemically induced uh, or mechanically induced. And so in, indeed it is. Those cases we can might be might be able to then shorten it. Yes, they can. And indeed we can shorten, but, but the point is with greater knowledge, we can shorten the degree to which that physiological that 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 we feel that rage by adapting to it sure and i think it is uh, I, I don't want to minimize the extent to which we can adapt i'm agreeing with you christopher the, the better explanation is that this is not an idea driven state this is a hardware driven sort of a, a physiological problem similarly with phenylketonuria if phenylalanine builds up in your blood, your ability to think isn't going to be as good. And virtually every single person who had that, indeed every single person who ever had that in history, became intellectually disabled until we discovered this gene pattern that is the best explanation for this illness and had the kids stop eating phenylalanine-containing foods. And when that occurred, the children started having normal IQs again. Yeah. And indeed, they're their IQ depended upon the amount of food they had. Now, the question is, is PKU a disease or not? It depends upon whom you ask. If changing the environment and the context can make a person not ill, then one could say that it is ideas that really is the cause of the low IQ because we developed a set of ideas that stop it. But before we had those ideas then the best explanation was that the genes were causing a lack of ability to metabolize phenylalanine and thus an inefficiency in being able to conjecture or refute. So even something as absolutely physical as PKU is both ideas yeah. and biologically driven. It, it depends upon the context. Yes. Yeah, and I, I want to stress that I think that having the attitude that uh, – that that it's about ideas and ideas are changeable problems are soluble i think that is invaluable and i'm no, by no means trying to de-emphasize that i just think that it might also be make sense to emphasize that yeah if someone is stabbing you in the back uh 
whilst there might be a way to deal with that since you are a universal explainer, provided you don't bleed out and die, uh, it would be easier and more uh, efficient to not have someone stab you in the back so that, yeah, uh, it does matter if you if that you don't get stabbed in the back or even as simple yes. as having digestive issues that will give your brain fog and um, make you interpret those sensations as something bad and, and you, you divert resources into dealing with these things and finding ways around them uh, that matter and I, I guess that's what I wanted no, to you make a yeah you make a, an excellent and really I think that is the the, the correct uh, point which is really where should one's resources be uh, directed if a doctor said after you're being stabbed in the back well this is a problem with ideas in our culture because people are violent you would very correctly <laughs> sue that person resources at that point should not be devoted to changing people's ideas resources at that point should be devoted to stopping the bleeding yes no that's a good point and so there there is an intimate relationship between knowledge and ideas, context, and physical disorder. Which one one focuses on, though, is a rational uh, choice that very much depends upon the situation. Many situations in psychiatry, for example, patients with schizophrenia, mm -hmm. patients who just had lung surgery, patients who have REM behavioral disorder, and are attacking their wife at night in the bed. People who are catatonic and can't move, it is a, a gross error to comment that these are individuals who have problems with their ideas when resources should be devoted immediately to changing the physical situation. In the, in the case of the person with the delirium from the lungs taking out. They need IV Haldol. And the person who is catatonically depressed, they need a physical intervention. They need ECT. In the case of someone with REM uh, behavioral disorder, they need a variety of drugs that are uh, that are REM suppressants so that they don't kick their wife so much. Yeah. <laughs> or they need off drugs that are that make this type of thing worse. It's a whole, it's a, a whole discussion. It's actually a more complicated discussion than some of the others. But nonetheless, conceiving of these things as possibly ideas because one could change the context is really missing something uh, very critical. And, and the fact that you point that out is very important. And yes, I have the same reaction on Twitter when people just say, well, mental illness is all about ideas. And if you just change your ideas, everything will be fine. Well, people will be dead by the time they change their ideas, particularly if someone's stabbing you in the back and you say that I'm going to devote resources towards stopping violence in society rather than stopping <laughs> the bleeding. You'd have to be a real Nelson Mandela to have that fortitude. <laughs> yeah, so uh, staying a little longer on the topic of schizophrenia then, but switching uh, angle here a little bit. I want to talk about the efficacy of drugs, more specifically the, the dangers and the positive uses of psychedelics because it's such a popular topic right now, especially within research. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts on these. So maybe we can start with, and I'm using psychedelics here in the original broader term that includes cannabis and MDMA uh, in that category. So cannabis, I, I found out that you... 
say is maybe more dangerous, uh, specifically when it comes to schizophrenia than the others here, when it comes to precipitating schizophrenia. So could you talk about that a little bit? What do we know uh, about cannabis and schizophrenia at this point? Yeah, I'm more afraid of cannabis in my patients with schizophrenia than I think almost any other drug. And there are two reasons for that. One is because it is so ubiquitous. So it is the frequency of use of it that makes me quite concerned. And the other is what it does to patients with schizophrenia. We don't exactly know why it does what it does, but it may be one of the the very few drugs that actually induces schizophrenia. We used to say that schizophrenia would have happened anyway, but tetrahydrocannabinol is a very dangerous component that seems to do a lot of bad things to the brains of people with uh, schizophrenia. Indeed, they have, uh, relative to those who don't use it, a threefold increased risk of uh, schizophrenia without it. But you mean people with about, the, in the risk group of schizophrenia when you say that, or do you mean people who already have developed schizophrenia? What I mean is that there's about a 3% chance of developing schizophrenia if one is a chronic user of cannabis versus about a 1% chance of developing schizophrenia if one does not use it. Mm. So mm. it literally increases the risk, not just the severity. And all of us have seen clinically remarkable phenomena. I remember in the 1990s working with patients who would take literally months to help with their psychotic symptoms. Finally, we'd get them stable and they'd literally be gone for one day. They'd smoke cannabis and takes another three months for our drugs to sort of put the genie back in the bottle and to get the person thinking coherently and rationally again. It was at that point that I began noticing that and, and started talking about it, frankly, long before it became popular for people to mention it. And the studies have now caught up. It's quite a dangerous drug. Now, why it is, I don't exactly know. I mean, it, it's well known that cannabis decreases synaptic density in the frontal lobe of the brain. That probably has to do with its capacity to cause apathy. It's uh, specifically damages a, a part of the brain called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex, which is part of the brain that is very much involved in allowing us to uh, think rationally and, and clearly. It's a very lipophilic compound, and the brain is lipophilic as well. It means it's kind of a fat compound. So whatever its effects are, it hangs around for very long periods of time in the brain, unlike, say, drugs like LSD or uh, mescaline or psilocybin. And so we don't know precisely why cannabis has this effect. It mimics many of the effects of schizophrenia, including the negative symptoms as well as the paranoia and the positive symptoms. And the other point that I'd make about the dangers of cannabis and schizophrenia is that relative to cannabidiol, which is a component of marijuana which may not be that dangerous or may in indeed have therapeutic value, tetrahydrocannabinol concentrations have been bred to be stronger and stronger year after year. Marijuana today is not your grandmother's marijuana. It's a far stronger compound. My strong suggestion to individuals who have had paranoid experiences on marijuana is just to stay the heck away from it because I have seen people who then break into schizophrenia and they don't seem to come back. So I, uh, I and I, as much as I'm scared of psilocybin and LSD in my patients, 
I have never seen that with either of those two. I have seen it with marijuana. Yeah, that was going to be my next question, because if you look at the propaganda to, to scare people off the psychedelic drugs, it seems like the baddest rep has been around, yeah, drugs like LSD for when it comes to going crazy and you're going to believe you're an orange and you're going to peel yourself and, and stuff like that. But so, so you're saying this link is not seen in the same way with, with those compounds? Statistically, the relationship between LSD, psilocybin, and other hallucinogens and schizophrenia are not nearly so common. Now, it might be a little difficult to tell because the frequency of use of these drugs is much less. Yeah, that's true. But my guess of this, even in terms of the half-life of the drug, in terms of the effects I've seen in patients, is that it seems to leave earlier particularly with high doses of this, people do have bad trips, and bad trips are associated with paranoia and panic-like attacks. We can sort of induce those things um, by using drugs that stimulate what are called 5-HT2A receptors, which are serotonergic receptors that seem to cause dopamine release in various striatal parts of the brain and other parts of the brain which are associated with and limbic areas which are associated with the creation of paranoia and psychosis. So one has to be careful with that. Indeed, our antipsychotic drugs are very much 5-HT2A antagonists, which, you know, therefore reverse the effects of this type of serotonergic stimulation on psychosis. But the overall answer to your question is, I suspect but don't know that LSD and psilocybin are less dangerous than marijuana in patients with schizophrenia. But in no way am I suggesting no. <laughs> of course. that patients with schizophrenia use LSD or psilocybin. Indeed, I, I beg them not to. I'm just wondering that as a, a public health risk, which is greater. But so would you then, uh, just to make the stakes a little higher there, if, if your children uh, were going to try a drug once, you would rather give them a high dose of LSD than a high dose of cannabis. Hmm. I would tell them to do neither. No, <laughs> that's not an option, man. <laughs> that's such a politician type answer. Yeah, no, it is. It is a politician's answer, but uh, I'm potentially speaking. I'll stay away from your children. I promise to the public. <laughs> but then uh, I'm very fascinated by the link between the unconscious and the conscious. And you were mentioning the dreams and the, the selection and mutation of ideas. And uh, I just find it very interesting. But um, I'm thinking we see the studies now with uh, good results, both with LSD and psilocybin for anxiety and, and depression disorders in, uh, in a clinical setting. And I, I think I've read that of thousands of, of trials, or not thousands of trials, but thousands of patients in these clinical trials, they haven't had a single uh, psychotic break, or, or I think they had one, but they had failed in the screening process of screening out for genetic, yeah, siblings with schizophrenia within two generations or whatever it is they use. So if you asked your question a little differently about uh, my children, if you were to say, in a therapeutic trial, would you rather your child smoke marijuana or used, say, 
very, very low dose MDMA. And I mean, very, very low dose, like 50 micrograms or something. Okay. Then I think I'd rather them do the very, very low dose uh, MDMA. So if I exchange the MDMA for 130 micrograms of LSD then? Which is the clinical dose that they've, they've established yeah, as the it's most less than well 200. Being. No, I know. Yeah. Yeah. I think that might be a reasonable if they needed it yeah. to be able to help manage post-traumatic stress disorder. But I would not recommend that to them as a first line for managing post-traumatic stress disorder until more uh, studies are available. I do think that it's likely that MDMA will get approval for therapeutic use in the treatment of post-traumatic stress disorder. All of these are interesting drugs. They suppress sensation coming into the brain and mind from the periphery, and that seems to be by working through the brainstem and spinal cord, and thus individuals become more introspective. Probably a third of individuals who do this these kinds of medication in controlled settings do have brief periods of dysphoria or even paranoia or panic in the experimental context, but mostly it's short-lived and easily managed by those working with them, at least in these initial trials. I think it does slightly take down the filter between the conscious and the unconscious mind. So as we were talking about before, people become more aware of various sorts of associations, which become a bit looser, almost like someone who's psychotic. But what's interesting about it is that there's often a euphoria that is chemically induced by these drugs. And the explanation for that is very interesting, ultimately has to do in most cases, or at least it's correlated with uh, dopamine release in the nucleus accumbens, said to be the pleasure center of the brain. And so it's very interesting when people have a more of a sense of empathy and more of a sense of feeling good with low doses of these drugs, Yeah, then they seem better able to process some of these unconscious associations. So let's say someone has been raped and then their unconscious mind in some way has conjectured that because the rapist had a beard, beards are bad. And the individual from then on, whenever he or she sees a man with a beard becomes paranoid, starts reliving the rape scene, and starts shaking and sweating, consistent with having post-traumatic stress disorder. In the context of these drugs, when a person is feeling quite empathic, is feeling euphoric, and associations are easier to make, then if he or she sees someone, for example, with a beard, A new conjecture is more easily made by the unconscious mind, for example, about the relationship between beards and danger. And so it seems that these medications can help us to reprocess some of our previous bad associations with memories. But let me add, I recommend absolutely no one doing this Hmm. except in a well-controlled study and in the context with very experienced therapists who have worked with this kind of thing before. And indeed, I recommend quite low doses of it as well. There really is no evidence that higher doses is in any sense 
uh, better or more complete. Indeed, one wants to be able to use one's rational thinking mind to be able to reprocess these old memories. So if this is going to work, it should be done in controlled settings. And I still am waiting for, at least in America, for our FDA to conclude that these are reasonable sorts of medications to be utilized. And still, it scares me that once the FDA gives its imprimatur to these medications, that people will use them so frequently that it will do more harm than good. Having said that, I'm open to change. I'm open to understanding the ability of these medications to heal people, since ultimately that's what we need to do as psychiatrists. I mean, I, I would, and I am aware of uh, the time. You've been very generous with your time, Michael. So we're going to wrap it up very soon. But I, my own little theory here, I know you are a fellow adopter of IFS to some extent. In that conceptual framework, what's happening with something like MDMA or LSD, you are physiologically hacking the self uh, the big self that they talk about in IFS. You're creating more self-energy and hence more capacity for you to be able to talk to your exiles and your protectors and uh, and integrate the internal family, as it were. Um, then you might have been sober uh, with less self-energy available. What, do you think that could be plausible or what would you say to that? Well, first, IFS is an interesting therapeutic technique. It posits that there are different uh, aspects of ourselves which are, in some sense, autonomous and thinking. I'm not sure that there really are multiple parts of ourselves which are a fully autonomous and thinking beings. I'm open to a bit of that. I, I know that, and we could perhaps go into this later if you were interested in it, when we cut the corpus callosum, for example, in individuals who have intractable seizures, and, and we used to do that, indeed there are, and provably so, two different uh, individuals who have separate minds in one individual, and one, there are any number of humorous experiments that demonstrates why that is. In terms of IFS, I'm dubious about all of them being fully independent. However, I think what IFS does, internal family systems therapy, is it substitutes for the therapist, the person himself who's doing the therapy, if you will, and learns to do the therapy with various aspects of him or herself. And so in that sense, the therapist becomes more of a guide and the individual learns to heal him or herself. And from my perspective, that is why it can be such an effective intervention. And I support it because of that. In terms of psychedelics and this, I agree that when someone has a profound sense of empathy and love, which, by the way, also has various brain regions associated with it when one stimulates them, when that occurs, I think an individual's ability to deal kindly with various aspects of him or herself, the, the critic or the part that is ashamed, becomes enhanced. And so I think that it will be shown that therapeutic modules like and therapeutic techniques using IFS-like ideas 
perhaps can be enhanced using low-dose psychedelics. Mm. I think the model that the IFS practitioners have, that this applies to all mental illness, for example, schizophrenia, yeah. is nonsense. Clearly, people are not working with individuals who are desperately ill. And as much as I really admire uh, Dick Schwartz and the inventors of this for their utter brilliance and the beautiful way in which they've empowered patients to heal themselves, I think it's quite a mistake to try to generalize to very, very sick patients. I think it's a mistake to do that. With that caveat, I would say that individuals who are mostly intact and who may have suffered any number of different traumatic experiences, I think IFS is a reasonable model. I always make the judgment like this when patients are in my office. If, after we're done speaking, the patient is able to put it back together and go back into his or her world and be the executive that they were before they entered my office, then I'm perfectly fine with moving into parts, going through recovered memories, all kinds of things. That's a good heuristic. But if a person can't, then clearly they don't have, I guess what in my field we'd call the ego strength, to be able to do that. And separating people into their parts and aspects of themselves is really a mistake. And I've seen people get considerably worse when individuals who are inexperienced in this go down this road. With all of those caveats, my guess is that IFS, internal family systems therapy, and low-dose psychedelic drugs, particularly MDMA, may be quite useful in post-traumatic stress disorder. And I look forward to it being part of our therapeutic arsenal to the extent that later studies reflect the early studies, which seem to demonstrate efficacy. Yeah. I, I actually didn't know that the IFS model said that there were autonomous entities in that in that sense. I've always just seen it from the, the Deutsch and Popperian uh, evolutionary perspective that it's just a way of saying that there is no uh, there is no uh, central director in your mind. There's not a one willed conductor. It's it's you have many different idea structures rather that uh, it's always a bad thing to repress one part and not let it be criticized and be part of the whole evolutionary idea framework there. And it's just, it's helped me to do that. But I also think that one critique could be that in the system, and I outlined it uh, in my previous episode, um, the, uh, the idea is that you're supposed to speak to the protectors before you go to the exiles who carry the pain. You need the protectors explicit uh, agreement to do that you need their consent and for me i feel like in my own work with that oftentimes you can do that inexplicitly their system is a way to do it explicitly but i feel like i have many times gotten to the exiles in an inexplicit way that wasn't following their protocol and it's worked out uh, wondrously well so i think there are there are it's it might not be the end all be all but it's a useful model in certain cases yeah I, I, your representation of it as you said it is shares a lot of ideas with my representation of it as well and in terms of the idea of getting consent from various aspects of one's mind i think that has a naturally protective quality to the mind as a whole 
one in general only very rarely wants to do things to people or wants to do things to oneself that's coercive or harmful or causes pain and suffering. In general, that's a a very bad idea. And so this emphasis on consent in individuals working with various aspects of themselves and in a sense asking that part whether one has consent to proceed is a very beautiful and useful thing. And I also appreciate that about uh, Dick Schwartz and what he did. Uh, That's great. And so my the the absolutely final question here for you is I saw an episode of House the other day and he's one of my favorite characters he's kind of a paparian I would say I agree and he had a migraine and he popped LSD to help with the migraine and then he took an antidepressant I think uh to to stop the effects of LSD. So I'm curious is that medically uh correct? Can you take something like Remeron to block because I think it's the 5-HT2A receptor uh that they are antagonized as well. Is that correct or was that just fun television? No, it's it's more than fun television. I'm not recommending that anyone use LSD to to treat migraines <laughs> you and don't no i i really don't that we have much more effective serotonergic agents that do not induce a panic or psychosis or the risk of that uh, but certainly serotonergic agents are useful remeron indeed has 5-ht2a antagonistic activities but if i were to be reversing in effect, from LSD, I would pick a different drug that's more directly antipsychotic and not a mirtazapine or remeron. I probably would pick one of the atypical antipsychotics, and the one that actually has very good demonstrated efficacy in situations like that is, frankly, olanzapine. So my first choice might be that to calm House down <laughs> if he had uh, become psychotic from his LSD use. I mean, yeah, he, he's fairly uh, erratic character to begin with. But I, to to clarify and to be uh, just to house, I'm not sure. Remeron or Mentazapine is the only one I know the name of. I don't know if he used another antidepressant. You know, Lanzapine isn't an antidepressant. It's an antipsychotic. Mertazapine is a, is a 5-HT2 antagonist. Uh, it's not known to be an antipsychotic for a variety of different reasons. And indeed, pure 5-HT2 blockers are not except there is a drug that is coming out to treat Parkinson's psychosis, which seems to act mainly on that receptor. But um, I'm dubious about its overall strength as an antipsychotic in, for example, my patients with schizophrenia. Mm. Right. Well, Michael, there is uh, an endless well of interesting things I want to ask you, so uh, I'll ask you to come back sometime fairly soon and we can can uh, go into even more fun stuff sure thank you very much Christopher. 